understanding self-consciousness would be the ultimate dream for a neuroscientist to understand that all the way from genes and proteins up to the higher functions. My assumption is that a prerequisite to understand self-consciousness is to understand memory. It's um, a bit hard to imagine self-consciousness without solid memory mechanism. So therefore I decided to start to look at uh, learning and long-term memory. And then we hope that that will eventually lead to a better understanding of consciousness and self-consciousness. Welcome to SCAS Talks, the podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and this time I talk to Dan Lahammar, Professor in Molecular Cell Biology at Uppsala University. Dan Lahammar is also the President of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. He is associated to SCAS by being responsible for the theme Human Brains and Societies within the Natural Science Program. And this is the second episode on our theme on the brain. We will talk about some research, but also about pseudoscience and misinformation. So very welcome to SCAS Talks, Don. Once upon a time, I was a student in your course in neurobiology, and it is very nice to meet again. Likewise. Thank you. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, my basic training is as a pharmacist. After that, I took a PhD program in the medical faculty and studied immunogenetics. And uh, shortly after that, I switched to neuroscience, which has been my main preoccupation since uh, 1985. So I've been in that field for quite a while now. I work mostly at the cellular level, trying to understand communication between and inside of cells. And then I have some favorite pastimes as well that are also related to the brain. And that is how easily we are misled and establish false ideas about the world around us. Yes, it will be very interesting to hear more about that. But we'd start with your research. So broadly, what are you studying? Right now, the main focus of my lab is to study how uh, the mechanisms of memory, especially long-term memory, arose in evolution. How the molecular machinery came about that has given us these uh, amazing abilities. And it's a quite complex machinery, so there are many components to keep track of and try to understand how they arose and how they evolved. That's one part of my lab right now. The other part is working with a special family of receptors that respond to hormonal and neurotransmitter signals in the body, including the brain. So let's talk a little bit about more about your project on long-term memory. So what exactly do you study there? We try to understand how the key components there, which are receptors that respond to a neurotransmitter called glutamate, how those receptors are modulated and regulated when we establish memories. And there are many other proteins involved that regulate these receptors. So we try to understand how they became so many and how they may have 
specialized on various aspects of these memory functions. And we are using, first of all, the evolution as a tool to understand how it became so complicated. And more specifically, we are using the zebrafish as a model animal. It's a very widely used experimental animal since many years. And there are now the tools available to study that genetically and behaviorally. So we modify specific genes that we think are of certain interest. And then we will look at how changes in these genes may influence the behavior when it comes to learning and memory. So you use the zebrafish as a model there, since this is a bit hard to do in humans. Yes, uh, humans are out of the question. There has been a lot of work done in mammals, but all of that is in mouse or rat. So almost everything we know about um, long-term memory is from these two closely related species of rodents. But it it turns out that uh, long-term memory exists in many other types of vertebrates. So obviously it must have arisen a long time ago in evolution. And we share a common ancestor with uh, the zebrafish approximately 420 million years ago. So that's quite a while. One of the findings that we have made is that uh, much of this machinery, many of the components existed already at the origin of the vertebrates 500 million years ago. So it's a quite old system that we're looking at. So that's very interesting. It's an old system. So long-term memory seems to be important for many species. Do you have any speculations why this can be so important? Well, for species that have a a longer lifespan, it is, of course, essential to collect information that will make it uh, easier for them to find food and mates and to survive. Of course, what we call simpler organisms rely to a large extent on uh, inborn mechanisms, that is, genetically determined mechanisms. They have been selected that way in evolution. But for species that have a much longer lifespans, it becomes even more useful to have a long-term memory. And when we speak about long-term here in different animals, it can mean anything from a couple of days until decades. So it's a a quite large span for the different types of long-term memory. But it could be that the, the basic mechanisms are fairly similar as soon as we go beyond several hours or a few days. So that's uh, the underlying principle for this approach that we are taking. And you study genetics and behavior. And if we should start with the genetics, then, I mean, how do you know what genes to look at or what components to look at from the start? Well, we look at the the evidence in the, the literature based upon the studies in the rodents. That has been pretty well worked out. And then we look at those genes and see if they exist in the zebrafish. And usually it turns out that there are additional copies of those genes in the zebrafish. And this may come as a surprise to many, but a a zebrafish and many other fish actually have more genes than human beings and other mammals. That's because the whole lineage of such ray-finned fishes have undergone an additional doubling of the entire genome. So that has provided them with more genes. And we think that um, these additional gene duplicates 
may be involved in more specialized functions. And more basically, if we return to ourselves and other mammals, our genome, like that of all other vertebrates, doubled twice at that time 500 million years ago, where much of this was established. So additional duplicates of these genes arose at that time. And we see often that they have similar functions. So if we find that um, a gene has been proposed to have a certain function in a rat or a mouse, we now look if there are additional relatives of that gene uh, to see if those too are involved in these mechanisms. And maybe they have specialized subfunctions in this context. And then the other part is that you look at the behavior of the zebrafish where you have knocked out a certain gene or modified it. How do you study behavior in zebrafish? Well, there are now well-established behavioral models or paradigms, as it is called. Now, this is not uh, my expertise, so I will be collaborating with colleagues who have this knowledge. And there are such behavioral setups to look at both spatial memory that is how zebrafish can navigate to find food, for instance, in a, a maze or a labyrinth in the tank where they are placed. And so that's one type of learning a memory that we will study. Another one is to look at how the zebrafish wants to interact with other individuals and which ones. That is some kind of social memory. And zebrafish, as many other types of fish, form schools. They like to be together. That's probably advantageous from an evolutionary point of view because it provides more protection if they can belong to a group. And so that's uh, what we will look at in the next phase of these behavioral experiments. Very interesting. And then how do you apply the findings that you get from your zebrafish studies? How can you translate that to human long-term memory? What we want to see is um, if the mechanisms are similar in zebrafish as they are in mouse and rat. If they are, then it is extremely likely that it will be the same in humans. Whereas today, we have basically only knowledge from rat and mouse, and then it is much more difficult to say whether humans are the same. But by adding a more distantly related vertebrate, we add a time perspective that will allow us to draw more firm conclusions regarding what it will, will be like in humans. Also, this will open up possibilities to study different details of memory mechanisms in various types of animals. Because if it turns out that it's similar in zebrafish and rodents, then one can probably look at this in other animals that are known to have good memory mechanisms and also animals that have what we consider a high level of intelligence, animals that display some kind of problem-solving behavior. I'm sure many have seen this on television many times. The famous animals that seem to be able to solve certain types of problems are various types of birds, but also, of course, our closest relatives in the animal world, other apes and especially chimpanzees and bonobos. But there are also other clever animals, as we like to call them, like dolphins and elephants. And uh, if we know more about the machinery, we can probably address the different aspects of the memory mechanisms also in other animals. 
Could we also make the connection to various diseases and memory losses and such things? Of course. We hope that understanding of these mechanisms will help bring light on uh, the degeneration that happens in certain diseases and especially, of course, Alzheimer's disease. Now, the, the key protein is a different one than those that are directly involved in the memory mechanisms. But if we can understand in what way that protein spoils the functionality of these memory mechanisms, then we can perhaps block that damage and slow down the process of Alzheimer's disease. I'm also thinking about learning and, and these aspects of memory that you can memorize things like in school or later on at university or just knowledge. Of course, it's an appealing thought that one could take a substance that will enhance the ability to memorize things, cognitive enhancers. But the fact is that some such substances already exist. Some that uh, increase our alertness may contribute to improved learning. And uh, one of those is imbibed by people on a daily basis, virtually. I'm thinking of caffeine of course. But surprisingly, it's not known in detail exactly how caffeine contributes in this way, but it's probably some kind of general alertness. Here we can probably find out more about the specific mechanisms to maintain memories and especially consolidate them. And one has a very strong candidate gene for consolidation of long-term memories. And there is a substance that can block that and then the step is not very far to something that can enhance that effect instead. And this particular gene that is important for consolidation of long-term memories, this is the first one that we will be studying in zebrafish, because that gene is there in the zebrafish as well. It will be interesting to follow up on. What is the biggest challenge when studying memory and those functions in the brain? The general challenge is that there are so many components involved. So it's difficult to know which one to choose. And there are so many secondary mechanisms that can influence the outcome of the manipulations that we do. So that is something that will demand a lot of time to resolve. Then, of course, it's... Um, difficult to compare across animals because the brain has developed somewhat differently in fish versus mammals, in rodents versus primates like ourselves, and so forth. But now, fortunately, with the brain mapping projects that are going on on a grand scale, we learn much more about this very rapidly. And not only how the different regions correspond to one another, but also how the different brain regions are connected to one another. So one speaks about the connectome of the brain. And um, what is really challenging there is that regions rather distant from one another can have prominent connections. And we still have a lot to learn about those. Yeah, it's a gigantic mystery and puzzle somehow. Some people like to say that the human brain is the most complex biological system in the universe. Well, if we 
keep it restricted to the, the earth, it's probably quite true. And um, it will take some time to resolve this. It's amazing how much these 10 to the 11 neurons can do. And uh, especially when we look at what properties may arise from the collaboration of these cells. Yeah, it's almost amazing that it can work so well, I think, sometimes, because there's so many things going on and you see so many potential for things not working properly. The explanation is evolution. It has happened so gradually. That's a very good explanation. We have seen during the past uh, decades and especially during the last 10-15 years an extreme development in techniques to study molecular biology and especially genetics. What impact has the development of all these new techniques that we have available nowadays had on your research? Oh, it means everything. Yeah, what many labs are doing now is studying gene expression at the level of individual cells. And that will, of course, generate a lot of useful information. Previously, one has talked about us having approximately 200 types of neurons in the brain. And there are, of course, many, many more when we look at differences in the level of specific proteins in these cells. And then we have the connections between the neurons, as we just talked about with new techniques to trace the connections between neurons that can be quite some distance apart in the brain. And those techniques will mean everything for our understanding. These will provide the basis for understanding the higher functions eventually. Yeah, in the last episode, I talked to Karin Jensen, who uses imaging a lot. So could that be used in studying memory also? Absolutely. It's being done on the animals with larger brains and the techniques are improving all the time. And with higher resolution, one can also study animals with smaller brains. So that is another important contribution. And then of course, uh, the genetics methods to, to modify genes in, in such a precise way with exquisite precision, we can uh, change individual letters in uh, the genetic code and I'm thinking, of course, of the gene scissors that received the Nobel Prize just a few months ago, the CRISPR-Cas9 method, which has revolutionized many types of research in the biosciences. Yeah, it's amazing to follow this kind of development that you see in the, uh, in the techniques that you can use nowadays and how much easier things are than when I was a student. Yeah, it's incredible how fast the sequencing of genes can be done nowadays. In the 1960s, it took 15 people many years to sequence a molecule with 90 components, 90 letters. That was the first tRNA sequence. When I did my PhD in the 1980s, I spent most of my time sequencing DNA, and I could perhaps um, summarize that now to something like 50,000 letters of the genetic code. That was my whole thesis. Now that is done by instruments in a matter of minutes. It's absolutely amazing. And it's much cheaper also. Yeah, 
that's the second part that uh, things have also not they're not only possible but it's also accessible just a couple of weeks ago two landmark genomes were published lungfish are more closely related to the the land-living tetrapod vertebrates than they are to the rayfin fish. So therefore, they have a key position in evolution. However, they have huge genomes. But nevertheless, two reports were published a month ago for two different species of lungfish, both of which have genomes that are 40 billion bases or letters long, which is more than tenfold the size of the human genome. Remarkably, these species do not have more genes than we do, but they have a lot more junk DNA repeats that have sort of diluted their genomes. And maybe that explains why they have a slower life cycle, a longer generation time. It takes longer to become a lungfish than for many other vertebrates. It's amazing that you can do this kind of studies nowadays. This would have been totally inconceivable uh, just a few years ago. And now these genomes pop up all the time. Yeah, I was visiting uh, the Broad Institute in Boston a couple of years ago and saw their sequencing platform, which was on a really industrial scale. And I guess it has grown since then. I mean, this is a couple of years ago. So More data is generated now than we have time to analyze. And my lab works mostly on bioinformatics. We interpret the information that is collected in or generated in these huge genome projects. Yeah, of course, because that's then nowadays you have to invest more time in the data analysts or you concentrate more on the analysts of data than rather than gathering it because that the machine can do for you. But let's return a little bit to the brain. You're also looking at the connection between long-term memory and consciousness, if I remember correctly. Well, we're not really looking at that. I think the time is too early for that. But of course, understanding self-consciousness would be the ultimate dream for a neuroscientist, to understand that all the way from genes and proteins up to the higher functions. My assumption is that a prerequisite to understand self-consciousness is to understand memory. It's um, a bit hard to imagine self-consciousness without solid memory mechanism. So therefore, I decided to start to look at uh, learning and long-term memory. And then we hope that that will eventually lead to a better understanding of consciousness and self-consciousness. But there, I just imagine that a lot of other disciplines also come in, like psychology, philosophy, and you can have a lot of conversations about consciousness with uh, other scholars. Right. It's important uh, that different fields of research come together to solve these big challenges. And surely, although I'm, I'm taking a reductionist approach, building from the bottom up, this will not tell us everything about consciousness by any means. We need to interact with psychologists and perhaps also philosophers to understand the connection between the molecules and the higher functions. My methodological expertise 
is in the molecular and cellular sciences. And I think it's also perhaps part of my personality that I, I like to build from the bottom up. And we can never understand memory and consciousness without understanding how it comes about at the molecular level. But I'm not uh, naive. I, I don't think we will uh, know everything about those higher functions only from the molecules. But uh, unless we know the molecules, we won't be able to explain long-term memory and consciousness. Of course, we need the details also. The, and as you say, from the bottom up, how it starts, really. Yeah. But of course, it's essential that others work from the top down, and then we will meet somewhere in the middle and try to make sense of all of this. And this brings us also to SCAS, the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, which is a multidisciplinary research environment where different disciplines meet and can discuss this sort of questions from different angles. And you are associated to SCAS through the part of the natural science program that is called Human Brains and Societies. And I just thought we can um, use this opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit more about this um, program. What is that about? It's about the interaction between uh, neuroscience and brain research and other disciplines, including um, almost anything you can imagine from philosophy and psychology to uh, teaching sciences, music, religion, law. Ethics, everything involves the brain one way or another. There is a beautiful quote by one of the fathers of modern neuroscience, Vernon Mountcastle, who was a, a scientist in, in the US who passed away just a few years ago, almost 100 years old. And he said at one point, there is virtually no science that's not relevant to studies of the brain. And I have the quote in front of me because I think it, it's so straight to the point. Brain science is extremely important independently from its importance in medicine. It provides the opportunity to understand ourselves, to understand how our brain functions, how we remember, how we generate emotions. And of course, this is important for all the things that I mentioned. So and my hope by writing this um, program for SCUS is that we can bring scientists from various disciplines together so that neuroscience can get input from other fields of science and uh, the progress that is made in neuroscience can be passed on to the other fields to see how it can become useful in those areas. And with all these brilliant researchers being around at SCUS, I'm sure you can get some quite good input on different aspects also. Yes, this uh, should give good opportunities for cross-disciplinary discussions. But let's switch gears a little bit. Still talking about science, but a little bit of a different aspect of it. One of your interests is pseudoscience. And you have been involved in the Skeptics Association for quite a while now. How you come you got engaged in this area to start with? Well, um, I think the first trigger was when uh, a friend of mine, a pen friend, became uh, religious. She actually converted from one religion to another. And um, someone had put in her hands a book 
that um, claimed that um, the Bible was correct and evolution is wrong. And I was probably 2021 20, at the time when she sent me this book and I read it and I was totally amazed that someone could lie so much about evolution. And they cherry-picked quotes from the Bible trying to contradict evolution. And when, when I looked up those places in the Bible, it turned out that those quotes were out of context, so they had nothing to do with the matter. So I was, I was literally appalled that some people can lie to get their favorite ideas across. Well, uh, then uh, there wasn't um, much in this context for a long time. But then in the early 90s, there was a, a, a motion from one of the members of the Swedish parliament that um, people who questioned evolution for religious reasons must not be discriminated at Swedish universities. And of course, that's very obvious that they should not be discriminated. But I wanted to know more about the matter to find out how and when this happened. And uh, it turned out, well, of course, it was a motion from a member of uh, the Christian party in the Swedish parliament. And um, when I contacted him, it turned out that there was one individual who had felt discriminated. And this person was not even working with biology at all. So that was all there was to it. But in that context, I discovered that there is an organization called the Skeptic Organization. In Sweden, uh, this is a network of organizations across the world that started to form on a larger scale in the 1970s. There had been a few many decades earlier. I think the first one was actually one in Germany in the 1800s. And uh, the Swedish organization is called uh, Science and education of the public. And this organization, I found out, works with looking into pseudoscientific claims and tried to explain why that is pseudoscience. And furthermore, they tried to understand the psychology behind beliefs of pseudoscience. And I immediately joined this organization and um, Eventually, I ended up in the board and I became the, the chair of the organization for several years. And I was on the board for more than 20 years, working and looking into many such concrete matters and writing about that in our magazine. And I also followed the organization in the US, the Skeptic Society there, which was formed a few years earlier than the one in Sweden. and. Um, there are some really prominent uh, scientists who have been in, involved in this movement. Carl Sagan, the astronomer, for one. Richard Dawkins from the UK has been very much involved in the debates in the US to respond to, to pseudoscience, mostly about evolution, because there's a very large proportion of the US population that uh, seem to have a problem with evolution, and they believe in biblical stories instead. Another prominent character and one of the co-founders of the American Association is a magician by the name of James Randi, who passed away just a few months ago, over 90 years old. 
And he was the one who put up the prize called the $1 million challenge that would go, this prize would go to anyone who could prove that they could do or perform something that we regard as pseudoscience, such as telepathy or horoscopes in astrology or dowsing going with dowsing rods to detect water or oil or lost objects or whatever. And of course, no one ever passed the tests. Everyone that claimed to have such extraordinary abilities failed already in the preliminary rounds of the investigations. That was a long answer to your question, but the, the, there were actually multiple reasons why I became interested and became involved. And of course, it all comes down to brain science, the psychology behind this. What is the appeal of pseudoscience to some people? And what can we do to make them think more critically about their favorite beliefs? I think that is a big challenge for science today. Why is it so important to think critically about it? People have strong beliefs that are totally wrong about very important matters. And one that is very hot right now is, of course, vaccinations. And there is a widespread um, so-called vaccine hesitancy or vaccine denial with lots of false rumors, conspiracy theories, fake news, all those words can be applied now. This is a, a major concern for our societies today. The vast majority of the populations are eagerly awaiting the vaccines that will save us from COVID-19, we hope. But there is enough opposition that it may prolong the harassment that the disease is causing to humankind. So we need to inform people about what is correct information and what is false information. And uh, this morning I was listening to a seminar at the European level, where several organizations have come together to try to inform about the, the usefulness of vaccines, especially when it comes to people who have underlying diseases that make them especially vulnerable to COVID-19. People with a reduced lung function, heart function, diabetes, and several other diseases. And it is, of course, essential that a sufficient proportion of the population take the vaccine so that those who cannot be vaccinated for one reason or another will also benefit from that protection, what we call herd immunity. Because there are some people who absolutely cannot be vaccinated, but it doesn't help them. Those who have a reduced immune system, maybe those who are on drug treatments for other diseases like cancer, and that will also suppress the immune system, and they cannot be vaccinated. Well, the vaccine probably will not do any harm, but they will not become immune. So they must be protected by herd immunity. And then we have all infants, of course, that do not have a mature enough immune system yet. So there's no point in trying to vaccinate them, but they can still get the diseases. Now, COVID-19 certainly doesn't strike very young people too badly, fortunately. But there are many other diseases that are fatal to infants on some occasions, like measles, which has been another 
topic of intense debate for 23 years now, ever since that horrible article was published in The Lancet that claimed that the measles vaccine caused autism, which was totally wrong. It was a fraudulent article. But some of these pseudoscientific people still believe in the person who wrote that article, although he has been deprived of his uh, medical license. There's always a lot of discussion about this measles vaccine amongst uh, parents of small children. Shall we take it? Shall we not take it? It's totally unnecessary because it, it's so well established. And that erroneous fraud article was retracted 11 years ago because it was all wrong. And it was based on 12 cases, eight of whom were claimed to be caused by autism. In the end, it turned out that there was only one. And when one does the large statistical population level investigations, as has been done in several countries, there is no correlation whatsoever between the vaccine and autism. And that's just one of the reasons why it's important to respond to pseudoscience. The other, of course, is global warming, which is a, a major concern to the future of humankind. And that discussion has been... Uh, fraught with uh, pseudoscientific claims or cherry-picking uh, for many, many years. Now, fortunately, it seems like uh, the message is finally getting across to a majority of people in most countries. But there is still opposition, still people trying to reject the idea completely. And there are also financial interests coupled to rejecting the climate warming. Yes, there is big business behind that, that uh, nourish uh, some of these conspiracy theories and some of the opposition. I'm thinking going back to vaccines. So what can you do then if you have people saying they're maybe not deniers of vaccine, but you can hear things like, I'm more afraid of the vaccine than the virus in the case of COVID. So how do you talk to such a person? Well, if, if the person is still somewhat open to rational arguments, one can, of course, show the, the studies that have been performed that show that uh, it's much more dangerous to get the disease than to get uh, any side effects from the vaccine. Of course, we, we monitor this extremely carefully now, especially when so many people are vaccinated, as is happening with COVID-19. And as soon as one suspects any problems at all, one investigates that extremely carefully. But already millions of people have been vaccinated, and the side effects are very rare and mostly very mild. So already it's crystal clear that the disease causes much bigger problems than any of these uh, side effects of the vaccine. So that's what we need to, to inform the general public about. Now, of course, um, the many organizations that is working hard to provide the facts realize that some of the most ardent opponents towards vaccinations cannot be convinced. They would probably lose too much pride if they admit that they were wrong all the time. And maybe they have completely different reasons why they do not want to take the vaccines, other reasons than they speak about officially. 
so there is a general realization that those people, those few, cannot be reached with rational arguments. But we take the discussion, we take the debate to provide information to those who have not yet made up their minds, those that can still be reached with scientific rational arguments. But there is an enormous effort now in many different countries to provide this information. In the seminar I listened to this morning, they explained that the the process for COVID-19 is more open, more transparent than any previous vaccine study that has been reported and developed. The European Drug Agency, the EMA, European Medicinal Products Agency, posts the results and the information continuously on their website so anyone can update themselves and see the information. And of course, it's scrutinized carefully by experts and journalists across the world. So they have to be extremely careful to provide correct information. The process is more transparent than ever before. Also, there is no risk because although the process has been very quick, quicker than for any previous vaccine, there has been no compromises with regard to safety. What's happening is that um, there is more investment in this. There's more financial support than ever before. So the studies can be carried out more quickly for that. But the, the quality assessments are as rigorous as for any other previous vaccine in history. Yeah, I think that is important to inform about because that's one of the points you often hear. Development has been too fast. It can't be safe. So one year ago, ago, everyone was hoping for vaccines as quickly as possible. And now the, the pharmaceutical companies and university researchers have put up a new world record, the fastest vaccines ever. And now people are saying, no, this is too fast. We cannot trust this because of that. But that's wrong. That's a misconception. And we need to inform about that. You were previously mentioning what's often referred to as debunking, to talk to people who might have a misconception about vaccines or global warming or other phenomena. Can you do something to prevent also that these conceptions form in general? Can you be faster than the people who want to misinform? Yeah, there's actually some research that be, has been done to address that. Debunking is after the event, and that can be tricky. Now, fortunately, there is some good advice how to try to achieve that. But even better is to pre-bunk, to inoculate people beforehand so that they become more resistant to fake news and false arguments. And uh, the research suggests that uh, that may help in situations like uh, that of vaccinations. They suggest that one should make people more critical thinkers about claims, check sources, of course. And um, this method looks very much like vaccination because they say that one should inoculate with a milder form of the misconception, but that nevertheless makes people think critically, can this possibly be true? Or is there anything that would speak against this or 
perhaps totally abolish those arguments. And if one has begun to think in those paths, hopefully one will become more resistant when the, the big lies come along with the conspiracy theorists and the more preposterous claims. So how can scientists, uh, researchers, what is their role in all this? What can they do? Well, the scientists presumably have the knowledge. So they have the, the strong arguments about what is the most likely or the best explanation for something. And they can debunk those that are totally wrong. So ideally, we should have even more engagement from scientists to participate in the public debate about these matters, vaccinations in general, COVID-19 in particular, global warming, and there are others as well. So that's um, one thing. So more engagement from scientists, more outreach activities. And I think the taxpayers can demand that because... Most of the research that is done, especially at universities, because most are federal, is done with taxpayers' money. So the taxpayers should get something in return, and that is information. Yes, and all scientists have this third task, as it's called in Sweden, to interact with the public. Right, it's an obligation. The problem is that... Uh, this obligation is not rewarded at all virtually when one evaluates scientists' achievements. So scientists at the universities should do three things. They should do research, they should teach, and they should interact with society. And admittedly, it is uh, difficult to evaluate and uh, quantify the engagement in public debate. And it can go wrong also that uh, some scientists are not that good at explaining things. So maybe they might instead lead to further misconceptions and may distance themselves from the target groups in society. But many scientists are very good at explaining things. After all, we, we work as teachers much of our time as well. So... It would be really good if such engagement could be favored or approved more by our employers. But it's not, it's not at this point, not enough. It has improved. I mean, 30 years ago, scientists who engaged in public debate were almost frowned upon, those that spent time responding to pseudoscience. But uh, I think now everyone realizes the problem when we see what this can lead to with the anti-vaxxers and the climate deniers and the creationists that deny evolution. And there are new people recruited all the time to those movements. So scientists must constantly be working to spread information to these groups. Yeah, I've worked with the science communication for more than 10 years and what i see is that there's also a need i mean people want to know things so there is this empty space this void and if that gets populated by people who like pseudoscience and conspiracy theories then that's of course a shame so the scientists should be there and be able to tell their story give their facts absolutely i think too that there is an, a general increased interest in science in society swedish public radio 
produce many excellent programs. Unfortunately, television and newspapers have cut down on their coverage of science, and they rely more on other sources. They do not have enough science journalists within their organizations, unfortunately. There are just a couple of exceptions from that. So there is a great need for science communicators. And my hope is that this will improve in the near future now that we realize that there is such a demand for such knowledge. How to make science understandable for the general public. I can only agree, of course, me and my colleagues, we see a momentum here also that science journalists can gain a bit more of a status and that hopefully more newspapers and media outlets will create this kind of positions for us. And COVID-19 has actually offered excellent opportunities to show the importance of both scientists and science communicators. And also both of those have helped explain the scientific process when we are facing a, a new phenomenon, a new threat to our societies. We need to collect information. And that is complicated effort that um, takes time. And uh, at the, the very research frontier, knowledge is still a bit uncertain. And uh, we have to live with that. And all we can do is try to move the frontier of science further and further and collect new knowledge. Yeah, looking at what has happened during the past years, really following science in real time. And, um, it's been quite amazing, actually. We have also seen doing the last few months and also during the last year, a polarization amongst members of the scientific community regarding a lot of questions around the pandemic, like whether or not to use facial masks, if schools should be open or not, if there should be harder restrictions like a lockdown. And a lot of scientists and science journalists have also received threats. Speaking from your experience, is this a new development, this kind of polarization among scientists themselves, and that is now battled out in the public? Or have we seen this before also? Of course, scientists have always had um, more or less opposing views on new phenomena. But I think this is the first time we see how this reaches the, the public debate. And it's because COVID-19 is, of course, so important and so severe for our societies. What uh, has been a bit worrying, I think, is that some of these scientists have expressed themselves in such a crude way. So it doesn't sound like a scientific discussion anymore. They have been accusing one another with fairly harsh phrases on some occasions, very few. Mostly it's a very civilized debate with evaluation of risks and benefits of various actions. And of course, scientists have somewhat different personalities. Some are more cautious and would argue for safety first measurements and stricter restrictions, whereas others perhaps are more adventurous and are prepared to take more chances. And that's why we need politicians also 
to evaluate the different arguments and take other aspects into consideration as well, such as social and economic consequences for our societies. And they will surely differ between societies as well. What has been particularly tricky, I think, in this context with COVID-19 is the consequences for treatment of other diseases. We see that the strict regulations because of COVID-19 has meant that we have had fewer cases of cancer treated in hospitals in Sweden. And uh, presumably the, the cancer frequency has been the same. So that probably means that people come later for cancer treatment to the hospitals. In other countries, the disease panorama is very different. So there the problem will be increased incidence of other infectious diseases instead and malnutrition in the poorest countries. And of course, those are huge problems. And there are some calculations now indicating that those consequences have led to more problems than COVID-19 itself would have led to, presumably, especially in countries with uh, fairly young populations. And COVID-19 seems to hit the oldest part of the population almost exclusively. But I'm also thinking about if you are on Twitter or some social media platform and you see these scientists disagreeing and being quite rude to each other, then you can use that as an argument to say, but they are not sure. They don't know what to do and what not to do. And that can sort of affirm your own theory or your even conspiracy theory about something. But um, when you think of it, it would be a strange reaction to say that because two scientists disagree with one another, I won't listen to any of them. It's much better, of course, to listen to them and uh, try to find out who has the best arguments. Now, of course, an individual person who is a, not an expert will have a hard time to do that. And that's why we need to listen to the general debate among the scientists and science communicators who translate this to understandable language. But of course, we, we must listen to the scientists' discussions and see who finds new data that is relevant and who has the best arguments. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I was just thinking that it's easy to cherry pick there also and uh, find your favorite person who, who will confirm whatever you already believe in. It is, and uh, that's how the human mind often works. And we need to work on that individually, uh, trying to avoid cherry-picking, trying to avoid the confirmation bias, try to question our own favorite ideas and favorite beliefs. I think we would need a lot more about human psychology in schools so that uh, we are trained to think that way from an early age, both to be critical towards ourselves and also to be critical towards others and ask, are there special reasons why they favor this or that idea? Are there special reasons why I favor this or that idea? And the whole point with, with science is to perform the studies in such a way that one minimizes the risk of such bias and cherry picking. That's how the scientific protocols should be designed. It's easier said than done many times, and especially 
when the knowledge is incomplete, but we're all striving to reach there. Yeah, because that's also often forgotten that there is no definite answer, right? I mean, we know what we know, but then there are a thousand things we don't know. Right, there may be a definite answer, but who dares to say when we're there? Well, some things are so obvious and so well confirmed that we can say that this is secure and safe knowledge. But uh, the closer we get to the research front, the greater the risk that there could be some hidden factor, some uncertainty. So we should be a bit more cautious with the conclusions. What would your advice be to other researchers, especially the younger generations, the one that are establishing themselves now? What kind of responsibility do they have to counteract pseudoscience and these kind of beliefs? And what should they do? Well, one should engage in public debate. If one is well initiated in a field, if one has acquired a certain degree of knowledge, one usually knows more than most people. And therefore, one should not hesitate to try to share the knowledge with others, especially if others appear to be misled by false claims. And I think scientists should not be afraid to share their knowledge. And importantly, scientists are trained in the scientific methods. So we can usually find caveats and the potential problems with certain studies thanks to this training to ask critical questions. Now, of course, we can be blind to questioning our own studies, as we discussed before, because we have our favorite ideas. But, but overall and by and large, scientists are pretty well trained to ask critical questions, to question things, to question the sources of information, to see whether those are likely to be reliable or whether there could be specific interests behind those ideological or financial interests that uh, could potentially compromise the claims that are made. So the scientists should try to convey this information to the general public. And we should really take advantage of the general interest in science and research in our societies now. This is a golden opportunity to inform about the scientific process and science results. We could talk about this forever, I think, but maybe we should wrap up. Is there anything that you want to add? Well... Let me just mention one thing that fascinates me, and that is the, the behavioral studies that are being done on animals and humans. And these might explain what makes us human, namely our ability to collaborate. Animals can do that. Both chimps and even elephants can collaborate in a lab environment to achieve things such as getting rewards. But the thing with humans is that if two human infants or toddlers have worked together to solve a problem to get a, a reward like sweets or some kind, they share the reward with one another. And that boosts collaboration. And there are beautiful experiments carried out by a guy called Michael Tomasello. And he has shown with beautiful experiments that are available on YouTube that humans uniquely share rewards after they have collaborated to get them. Michael Tomasello. 
He um, is at Duke University in North Carolina, and he is also a foreign member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. So do take a look at his YouTube movies. They are fascinating. Yes, we should do that. And also, yeah, I was thinking then if scientists collaborate and succeed and publish a good paper and then get the next funding, that will also then strengthen their collaboration for the future, right? And we're seeing more and more collaborations between scientists. Scientists have always been very good at collaborating. And uh, nowadays, studies require often so many different methods that one needs to bring together expertise from different areas in order to get a complete story to solve a problem. So collaboration is really the key in science. Thank you very much for being on SCAS Talks and talking to me about your research and a lot of other very interesting things. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the second episode within the theme The Brain. This time I have talked to Dan Larhammer professor at Uppsala University and responsible for the theme Human Brains and Societies within the Natural Science Program here at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In the previous episode on the same topic, we have heard Karin Jensen about pain and the placebo effect. And in the next conversation about studies on the brain, I am going to talk to Terje Falk-Utter about his research on autism. But before that, we will also launch the first episode on the topic Africa, and another episode on global governance, this time focusing on neoliberalism. Later on during the spring and summer, we also travel to galaxies far, far away and hear more about life in outer space. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Don Larhammer once again for joining SCAS Talks and of course you for listening. Bye for now.